Our thanks to the praise team for leading us in worship this morning. And our children, second grade and under, may leave for Children's Church. Bye-bye. Thanks to Vance and for Stephanie, since Mike and Sheila are in Connecticut visiting their son and their daughter-in-law and Esther. And keep them in your prayers. I think they're traveling back tomorrow. <clears throat> so for those of you that are uh, joining with us via the internet uh, to follow along, watch along, listen along, we do welcome you. And along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we want you to follow along. If you don't have Bibles, there are pew Bibles, and this particular passage is on page 1014. So follow along. That version is the uh, is English Standard or Easy Southern Version, and I'm in New King James. Uh, some, uh, a lot of similarities, but some minor differences. So keep that in mind if you would. And we've been in First Peter now for uh, a number of months. And moving through or into a passage of scripture that is pivotal. In other words, Peter is changing his thought process. And as we uh, journey through the passage this morning, we will uh, learn more about uh, what he's writing about in verses 4 through 10. So I want to read those verses again in your hearing. He quotes from three Old Testament passages. I know we'll be in at least one of them this morning. In your hearing. Verse 4 Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect. Precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. A beautiful passage of scripture, and one that is steeped in Old Testament understanding, and we will see that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, bless, I pray the word. It is the only agency in this life that you've promised to bless. It never returns void. We ask that you, we would, by the Spirit of God, through the word, and by the uh, understanding of the word, that we would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the chief cornerstone. Draw sinners to yourself. Draw believers back to you, and may we reconfirm and recommit our lives totally to you. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, if you would, brother. 
Okay, so we have been talking about privileges. And this passage is a reminder to every born-again believer that we have a number of God-given privileges. Yes, we are saved from the wrath of God the Father through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all. He has given to us precious promises in the precious cornerstone. So, Christians belong to a class who enjoy special favor and rich spiritual privileges in Christ. And I reminded you as we closed out the passage last Sunday morning that one reason that folks reject Christianity is that the Bible teaches the exclusive nature of privileges in Christ alone. And folk do not like to be excluded. We live in a, in a country or we live in a world now that we hear the word equity quite a bit. Well, the equity that we have is at the foot of the cross. All sinners are the same. So, it was the economist Friedrich Hayek that said this. The fatal conceit of man is that man is able to shape the world around him according to his wishes. And Hayek wrote extensively about this. Basically, he is saying that we are living in an age, and he wrote this about 50 years ago now, we're living in an age when because of our education, because of our skill sets, because of our intelligence, man can do virtually anything. And Hayek said, he saw this coming, and he said, this is a fatal conceit of man. That man thinks that he can shape the world according to his wishes. And this has led to an epidemic and anxiety in our society, especially in the Western world, which is unfortunate. And sometimes we are anxious as believers, but this should not be the norm. In fact, if you look at statistics, we're told now that two out of every five people suffer from some type of anxiety. In 2 Peter, if you read verses 2 and 3, which we, let's read them again, because they lead into what Peter is writing here in verse 4. He says, uh, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, Peter is writing to an anxious people, more anxious than you and I. For they lived under a dictator, a Caesar, that considered Christianity to be an atheistic faith. Talked about that a number of times. And so they were dispersed about Asia Minor, the seven churches of Asia, and other places as well. And so Peter is writing to encourage them. And in verse 4 he says, we are coming to him. Actually this is a a, uh, a reinterpretation, if you please, of Psalm 34, where there the psalmist said they looked to him, and Peter paraphrases it, says, 
They come to him. We are to come to him. And verse 4 says, as we are coming to him, he is being reminded or he is recalling to remembrance of the teachings and preachings of his Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter heard that in person. In John 6, he heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He heard that. Next slide. And later on in John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And Peter's going to talk a great deal about us being an elect, precious group of people that have privileges. We'll see that as we move through this passage. Verse 44, Jesus said, And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And he does that, obviously, by his Spirit. One God Three distinct personalities. In verse 60, Jesus uh, was asked a question as he was teaching. Now, this was immediately after he fed the 5,000. And so people came to him, and he, they were wanting to be fed. In fact, Jesus said, you're not coming to me to hear me preach. You just want to be fed again. And some of his disciples that were there not the twelve, but others said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And in verse 65, following this conversation that went on with some of the disciples that left him, pseudo-disciples, Jesus said, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him from the Father. Indeed, these are hard sayings. And the scripture says many of his disciples left him for that teaching. And then Jesus said, will you turn to his, his uh, 12 disciples and say, will you also go away? And Peter, this same Peter, answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus in the next chapter, John chapter 7 says, If any man is thirsty, John chapter 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. Take from me. Now, he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And so what Peter is saying in verse 4 is in coming to Jesus, we enter the realm of spiritual privileges that are reserved for those that come to Jesus alone. That's the Word of God. That's the preaching of the Word of God. Now, initially we come to Jesus for salvation. But that's not it. That's not just why we are born again. Some people think that. But it's not just why we come to Jesus. The total meaning of the word coming in verse 4 is to come with the idea of Staying. Robbie and I, if God gives us grace to make it to the 24th of February, we'll be married 50 years. We met and started dating about 50 years ago, actually the month of September, um, 50 years ago. So this is our 50th 
year of being together, married in February. Very, very short courtship. When you find a good thing, he, the Bible says, that finds a wife, finds a good thing. All God's people said? Most people can say that. Now, I think the corollary is true also. She that finds a husband finds a good thing. All God's women said? (laughs) But it's good. It is not good, the scripture says, for man to be alone. So, so we come with the idea of staying, and thankfully, by God's grace, (laughs) Robbie's put up with me for 50 years. And believe me, that's been a, don't ask her, but it's been a, it's been a tall, tall order. In John 15, the part of the upper room discourse, and in 1 John 3, John uses words to speak about coming, to speak about abiding in Christ, to speak about coming to him and remaining in him. So when Peter says we come to him as a living stone, he is talking about coming to him in such a way that we remain. We don't come to get the benefit and then leave. Next slide. <clears throat> now, Peter is quoting from the Septuagint. That's S-E-P-T, not September, but Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what Peter is literally taking from the Old Testament, and we're going to look, look at one of those passages here in a moment. When we draw near to God, we come for continuing worship. Remember verse 2. Desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow by it. That's the remaining. That's the staying in his presence. Now the root word for the word coming is the, from which we get the English word proselyte. The Old Testament, it was the, under, the understanding of the word proselyte in the Old Testament is a person who was afar off who draws near. And the idea is it referred to Gentiles. In fact, we're going to see this in Isaiah 28. The idea is that uh, Gentiles were outside of God's covenants. They were outside of God's promises. They were outside of God's law. But they were drawn near, were supposed to be drawn near by the testimony of the Israeli people. And the Israelis failed miserably. They became very, very racist in their thinking about Gentiles, their dogs, their heathens, their pagans. So the spiritual privileges here, in fact, the normal word that we use here that Peter is using for coming is also used in the book of Hebrews for coming near to God and remaining there to worship him. So when you see the phrase coming to him, it means that we are drawn by the Spirit of God to come to him because the Spirit alone has to draw you. The Word of God has to be revealed to you to know who Jesus is, the chief cornerstone, and that you remain with Jesus to worship. We had a great time last Sunday afternoon in fellowship, in eating, and all of the 
the fun activities that went to uh, went uh, with the uh, church picnic. But we come to worship. So the spiritual privileges that he lists in this passage of scripture, verse two, verses four, rather through verse ten, these privileges that he lists begin when we come to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus sustains us. We don't, we're not sustaining ourselves. Jesus sustains us as we come to him. Now, as we come to him, the whole movement of the inner life, the sanctification that comes through the Spirit of God, and he says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The whole movement of our inner life is with communion toward Jesus Christ. That is coming to Jesus. It's not walking an aisle. It's not praying a prayer. It's not falling under the waters of believer's baptism. It is remaining in him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. All of that revolves around Jesus. Christ is the person who gives us the advantage over the world. Christ is the reason for the privileges. We didn't earn them. We can't earn them. Only through Jesus. We are the privileged. Peter says that. We're the favored. We're the blessed. And all God's people said, Amen. we are the privileged, we are the favored, we are the blessed. Next slide. And we are because of the chief cornerstone. We come to him and we are coming to him. That's the understanding of verse 4. The first thing we're done that happens in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 1, he says we are convicted by the word of God. And then the second thing that happened is the, uh, happens is in the first part of chapter 2, the word of God produces a desire for knowing more of Jesus. Do you want to know more of Jesus? You should. Peter commences a structure in this passage which alternates between Christ who is the living cornerstone and those who respond to him as we are living stones and those who don't. Very clear. Those that reject and those that stumble over Jesus. So, brief outline to verses 4 through 10. First section of chapter, uh, verse 4 rather, uh, 4a, Christ is the living stone. We'll identify that. What is meant by this? Second portion of uh, verse 4, the believers are, because Christ is a living stone, capital L, we are living stones. Verse 5, believers are built up as a spiritual house. That spiritual house is the church. Believers are not built up as individuals. We are built up as the church. Verse 6, first part of verse 6, Christ is the cornerstone of the house that is built up. He's the cornerstone of the church. And we're going to see that as we go through passages this morning. 
latter part of verse 6. Believers are never to be shamed or ashamed of our Savior Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have privileges. Verse 7, he begins to quote from three passages in the Old Testament. The cornerstone is honored by believers. The title of these messages has been, We are to honor the cornerstone in his gospel. You and I have the privilege, the privilege of honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse, the latter part of verse 7 and through verse 8, the downfall of those who reject the living stone. Some of you here this morning may be doing that, may have done it for years. Some of you that are listening via the internet this morning may reject the living stone. And when you do, Peter says, quoting from the Old Testament, you're stumbling over the rock of offense. I heard John MacArthur say recently when talking about preaching the word of God and someone uh, sent him an email that said, basically, I'm offended by what you say. And he replied back to them with all due respect, God has been offended by man ever since he was, man was created. It's okay for us to be offended by the grace of God. Verse 9, Peter says, Our new identity is we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a special, specific people. We're different. And we're meant to be different. And then in verse 10, he said, Believers receive God's mercy and are saved. And those that reject do not receive God's mercy and are not saved. Clearly, the Bible teaches this. Next slide. Two major themes in this passage, verse, verses, uh, actually verse 4 through 12, but we're specifically focused on 4 through 10. Two major themes. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the second one is Christ is greater than the temple. Now where do you see that, Ernie? Well, he talks about a royal priesthood. But the passages that he quotes here have to do with what took place in the Old Testament when the temple, the Solomonic temple, the temple of Solomon, the first temple, was built. He uses the phrase in verse 4, living stone. And so in order for us to understand that, let's go back to the book of Isaiah. So that's where he's quoting, Isaiah chapter 28. Let's go back to Isaiah. We had the privilege, and it was indeed a privilege, a number of years ago in our Sunday school class of studying through the book of Isaiah. We're very close to finishing up Ezekiel now. But the, the specific <clears throat> passage 
that Peter is quoting is verse 16, but I'm going to back up. Let's read verse 16 and back up, and I'll show you why Jesus is referred to as the living stone, the chief cornerstone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion. Now, what do you know about Zion? Stop here just for a moment. Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion, two primary mountains. Now, it's not a mountain like the peaks of Otter or or, uh, Mount McKinley or whatever. But there were two major, we, we would refer to them as hills, basically, in that region of Judea. Mount Zion was where Jerusalem was built, and across the Kidron Valley and up on a mountain that was higher than Mount Zion was Mount, the Mount of Olives. Mount Zion was where the cornerstone was laid for Solomon's temple. So he says here, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for foundation, a tried stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So when you read that, he's not talking about a rock. Old Testament priests, Old Testament prophets understood this to be a reference to the Messiah. Jesus himself talks about it. Uh, and a number of other passages of scripture. I don't know if we'll make it there this morning, but we will, we will next Sunday. So he quotes using the metaphor that you see here and employing that in verse 4, actually in verse, verses 4 through 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, back up, if you would, to verse 13. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. So this is speaking specifically of the prophecy of Isaiah. And the reason for this is verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, with hell. We are in agreement with the overflowing scourge. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Isaiah prophesied. And Peter picks up on this in chapter 2. The rulers of Judah, if you read the entire, entire chapter, you can pick this out. I'm not going to do that this morning. The rulers of Judah place their trust in the strength of the cornerstone in the Solomonic temple on Mount Zion. They made a treaty with death and with hell. 
that if anything happened to the cornerstone, they would be taken into captivity. And indeed, they were. God is chastising them for not placing their trust in the chief cornerstone. And Peter is picking up on this in chapter 2. You see why there is a pivot now from verse 3 of chapter 2 to verse 4? Now Christ used this analogy in Matthew 16 where he teaches the three that went went up on the Mount of Olives looking down on Herod's temple. And he's saying, upon this rock, me, I will build my church. Don't worry about the cornerstone that is in Herod's temple. By the way, and we'll see this in just a moment. But the, but the chief cornerstone in, in Herod's temple was the chief cornerstone that was in Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, and the same chief cornerstone that was in Solomon's temple. The very same one had lasted for a thousand years. How many engineering marvels do we have today that have lasted for even three or four hundred years. So he uses this analogy. And Peter recalled this. And he reminds his readers that Jesus is the living stone, not him. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter says, I'm not that rock. Don't misunderstand what my Lord was saying. We're not that rock. Jesus is. Now the building of the temple are actually any major building. Even today the cornerstone is traditionally the first stone that is laid for a structure. And this was of primary importance in ancient times. It marks the geographical location of a building in a specific direction and this was ultimate to the Levitical tribe when the blueprints were laid for Solomon's temple. The gates had to, uh, the main gate had to point to true north, true north. And then the other gates, east, west, south, were oriented by the orientation of that chief cornerstone. Now Jesus knows this. And from what we gather, Peter knew this. So don't say Peter was a dumb fisherman. He knew this. He would have learned this in rabbinical school when he was just a child. When the foundation of the the building was laid, it was the custom to kill a ram or a lamb on the cornerstone and to let the blood flow over that cornerstone. The slain animal was then laid under, would be buried under the cornerstone. The sacrifice symbolizes strength and stability for the building. So Jesus in Matthew 16 with with Peter, James, and John looking down across the Kidron Valley to Herod's temple with the same cornerstone 
that was in Solomon's temple and that was in Zerubbabel's temple. And this cornerstone, next slide if you would, brother. Peter reminds us, look at verse 6. Let's go back, go back to uh, first, uh, yeah, first Peter chapter 2. Peter reminds us in verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So Peter reminds those that he is writing to and the good old folk here at Flat Creek that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God the Father because they are made through God the Son. My preaching, the teaching, Vance, Gordon, whomever that may be involved with that, Stephanie this afternoon, all of what we do is because there are spiritual sacrifices that the Lord has placed upon our hearts that come to fruition by the power of the Spirit of God for the good edification of the church of the living God. Now, a sacrifice was made on the chief cornerstone before it was fitted into place. That chief cornerstone became the main foundation for the Holy of Holies. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple. In the center of that temple was the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest and then only once a year. No one! Gordon was teaching this morning in the book of Ezekiel talking about the uh, entrance into the east gate in, uh, in, uh, in the millennial temple. We've been studying that. And it says no one will enter through that gate. It's the, it's the Lord's gate. No one comes through that gate. And so there, the foundation stone that was laid was laid to begin with in the Holy of Holies. It was the first type of room that was constructed in each of those temples. Allegedly, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in Solomon's temple on top of the chief cornerstone. Solomon built the first temple. David wanted to. God said, no, you can't. You're a man of war. You can't build the temple. Must be a man of peace. Solomon, David was able to collect all the materials. But Solomon, his son, built the temple. God charged him to keep the temple construction site south. 
be still and know that I am God. The sound of the hammer, in fact, this quote's taken from 1 Kings chapter 6. There God told Solomon, probably through Nathan the prophet, and the temple, when it was being built, was built of stone finished at the quarry. And so there were no hammers or chisels, nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple while it was being built. Some of you men and perhaps some of you ladies obviously have been, born, have been involved in construction over the years. It's kind of hard to build a building without making sound, isn't it? But God said there will be no sound made. They didn't speak a word while all of this was being accomplished. And we understand it took them, Solomon's temple probably took 15 to 20 years to build. Herod's temple, we think, took 40 years to build. Every portion and you can read all of this in, in the latter part of 2 Samuel, also the first part of 1 Kings. Every portion, the timbers, the stones, the material uses, used for the walls, the gold, everything was prepared beforehand and stationed away from the temple so that as the temple was being built, they would send messengers for certain materials to be brought. All the engineers, designers, and architects that were there would then write down what was to be done. No verbal messages. When Christ was tried before Pilate, he answered him a couple of times. He was taken to Herod, the king, Herod Antipas, and he was placed on trial there, and Herod and his men ridiculed him, asked him, well, if you are the king of the Jews, would you tell us? And the scripture says, Jesus answered them not a word. He was silent. Oh, how we need to return to that today. We need to be still and understand the love of the chief cornerstone. Now these stones were huge. It is estimated that the chief cornerstone, by the way, this cornerstone still exists today in the Wailing Wall of East Jerusalem. It's estimated that this stone weighed 500 tons. And it was not moved using earth moving equipment that we have today. Where do you think the Hebrews learned this? They learned it from the Egyptians. You think God has a purpose for you and for me? You think God had a purpose for the 400 years that the Hebrew people were in captivity? Yeah. You see, the Lord was looking ahead to the building of the tabernacle and eventually to the building of the temple. And we get upset if he doesn't answer us in 30 seconds after we pray. This is the God we serve. 
This is the chief cornerstone. This is the one that holds the stones in his hands. You remember what Jesus said when he made his way into Jerusalem, up Mount Zion? They said, Son of David, tell these people to be quiet. Jesus said, I won't. If I do, the stones will cry. Peter was there. He knew this. We're special because of the chief cornerstone. Were great stones, costly stones, huge stones. They laid the foundation of the house. This is in 1 Kings 5. One of the stones is estimated as one of the largest stones ever taken out of a quarry, about 500 tons, a million pounds. Next slide. Now, when they initially quarried the stone and brought it, now they, they would have already cut the sides. It had to be perfect. There were no blemishes within the stone. It would have been polished. It would have been prepared as they took it to the temple. And so they put it into place for some reason, and it's thought, tradition says, that the problem was that they had surveyed the area and uh, had missurveyed. But they put the first stone, that chief cornerstone, into place, and it didn't seem to fit. So the builders got together and they pushed that stone over into the Kidron Valley. They rejected the stone. And after doing some recalculation and thinking about it for a while, they examined other stones. That's what is said here. The examination, the test of other stones. And they couldn't find one that was more perfect than the one that they had pitched over into the Kedron Valley. And so they got all the laborers together and they pushed it and pulled it back up onto Mount Zion. Now the Hebrew people knew this. Jesus in Matthew 16 with Peter, James, and John knew this. And Jesus would later and we won't look at it this morning. We'll look at it next Sunday. But in three particular places in the Gospels, Jesus said, Have you not read that the stone which the builders rejected is now the chief cornerstone? This is our Savior. The stone was used by the high priest, offering up incense and sprinkling, sprinkling the blood. And so what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 28 is decrying the Jews' insistence that their prosperity, does that sound familiar? Their knowledge of construction. Their pagan neighbors would aid them when Assyria and Babylon Invaded. You see why I opened this morning with a quote from Frederick Hyatt? 
The fatal conceit of man is that man is able to shape, is to think that man is able to shape the world around him according to his wishes. That's what the Jews did 3,000 years ago. Man doesn't change. If anything, we become more arrogant, more prideful, more set in our ways, more duped by the world. The Hebrews during Isaiah day thought that they could make alliances with their pagan neighbors and the alliances turned on them because both Assyria as Assyria swept through and took the northern tribes, the ten tribes into captivity and then eventually Babylon came in and took Judah and Benjamin into captivity. And this is why the, Yahweh made the prophecy in Isaiah 28, 16. There is only one edifice, only one, that can stand against death and hell. Only one, the living stone. Is he your living stone this morning? Next slide, brother. We'll close with this this morning. <clears throat> In verse 4, we've seen Peter uses that word coming. We've talked about that. Uh, I've given you some of the, the background to that particular word. It indicates a drawing near to God for worship. In the Old Testament, it was mostly reserved for priests that would come to the tabernacle or the temple. But you and I are privileged because we are now a royal priesthood. We're privileged because of Jesus. Not because of us. Not because we're Americans. Not because we're Virginians. Not because we're Southerners by the grace of God or whatever. Simply because of the living stone. He's called a living stone because he was resurrected from the dead. He's a rock. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, and all drank the same spiritual drink, talking about the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And he said, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. This is our foundation. Now Peter has written, look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Peter has written about a living hope. It's alive. Why is it alive? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter has written about a living word. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The living word. We have a living hope because of the resurrection. We have a living word because of the resurrection. And then he's writing now about a living stone. Paul would write this. We're now the temple of God. Our bodies are become 
the temple of God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, writing that marvelous chapter, says, Therefore you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure, now what is he talking about? He's talking about the structure of his church. Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus did this for you and I. The temple was unique in its beauty. It was unique in the way it was built. In its silent assembly. The temple of the Old Testament is a striking type of the spiritual temple that is now being erected by the Spirit of God. The holy temple in the Lord. Christ is greater than the temple, by the way. And God chose him, precious, to be the one that would cause us to be born again. Do you honor, honor the cornerstone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. For your word. We thank you for Peter's understanding of what he was writing about. We thank you for the prophecy of Isaiah. We also know that a similar passage is found in Psalm 118 and then mentioned again in the book of Isaiah. We thank you that Jesus, with Peter, James, and John, looked down on the temple and he said, Guys, I'm that chief cornerstone. And because he is, we're living stones. Some have rejected him. Thankfully, some have not. And so our prayer is this morning you would move in our hearts and lives for those that do not know your Savior. May they see themselves as sinners in desperate need of a Savior and then understand that they have one that loves them beyond their, their comprehension and one that in spite of their sin will forgive them and save them from the wrath that is to come. We pray for believers this morning. Oh, work in our hearts and minds to know the truth of the chief cornerstone. And then, Father, remind us that we too are living stones and as such should be an example to this world. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn this morning.
And this verse is for you and I, if the Lord has spoken to you in any fashion and you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, we can't save you, which is good news because there's one greater than the temple that can save you, and that's Jesus. We will, as we sing, give you opportunity to make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room and there lead you with an open Bible, living word, to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here this morning with that assurance. Don't reject the chief cornerstone. Don't push him over the hill. For those of you that are believers, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, and we encourage you this morning, if you know the Lord as Savior, perhaps you uh, desire to unite with Flat Creek, maybe you do know the Lord as Savior, you need to follow him in believer's baptism, we encourage you to do that today. Or unite with a church from church of uh, like faith or uh, understanding, we encourage you likewise to make that call today. As a child of God, there's so much about this. I've been make, making notes off and on all week, scratching through, rearranging, still have a number of So much about Scripture that we don't know. It goes back to history, historical things. Yes, history. That Jesus wants us to know about him. 